everybody. It's nice to be back at seminar. I really, I really love our Dharma seminar. You know, I, 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 I don't know what I would do without it. So I missed, I missed being here. I was here a couple times uh, last month, but I missed being here. And uh, thanks to Sue, who is not, who is uh, down Tassajara right now, so she's not hearing hearing this. Uh, but uh, thank you to Sue for uh, a really interesting, fun seminar on time. My favorite part was the time exercises, which I thought were so they were so simple but so profound. And thanks to uh, Tom White, who we, who we really miss, and, I, and I'm sorry that I wasn't here for his talk, and Maya for her talk. Time, our best friend, our worst enemy, right? <laughs> our constant companion, Ourself, probably. Time, beautiful, benign, and probably the most destructive, most violent thing. Which is a great segue uh, to our uh, topic for the next week or two, this week and next week, uh, the poems of Emily Dickinson. Emily Dickinson is probably my all-time favorite poet, and I go back to her again and again. Uh, but uh, I have to stop reading her because I will never be able to write my own poems if I read if I keep reading her. A few years ago, uh, I was lucky to be in Amherst, Massachusetts, and it was a tremendous thrill to go visit Emily Dickinson's house which, they say, is still more or less um, as it was when she lived in it. So I went all around the grounds and went inside and saw all the rooms, and I went into her bedroom where she wrote probably most of her 1,775 poems. And her bedroom overlooks uh, the street in a big front yard with a, now has big trees in it. I don't, I don't know how big the trees were when she lived there. So much to say about Emily Dickinson and so much that has been written about her. Many, many books. I've read a few, but uh, I think you could read books about Emily Dickinson for a long time and not exhaust the library. My favorite book about Emily Dickinson is the classic My Emily Dickinson by uh, a poetry colleague of mine named Susan Howe, who is extremely astute, and I think it must be the best book on Emily Dickinson. It came out in 1985, and uh, it's a wide-ranging, it's a short book, small book, but it's very wide-ranging. And, uh, and uh, Susan Howe emphasizes in that book in a very profound way uh, the powerful fact, an obvious fact, that Emily Dickinson wrote as a woman in a very masculine world 
from which she was of necessity alienated. Which for her, I think, was a really good thing because uh, it gave her a great power of vision because she could ignore the world that didn't and was probably incapable of noticing who she was. And the only thing she could do is go very, very deeply into herself, which was the only place where there was true recognition and the only place where she could discover a truth unknown you know, to the people around her. So it turned out to be, actually, I think, a big advantage. I, I would say that it's very possible that Emily Dickinson is the great religious, the great mystic poet of all time, which is why it's so appropriate to read her in our Dharma seminar. And her mysticism is unique. It's completely poetic. It's, you can't separate it from the poetic process. It's completely sui generis. It doesn't have even the slightest hint of conformity to doctrine or dogma, as most of the world's great mysticisms do. There are lots of versions of Emily Dickinson's life that, that speculate about how she was uh, unhappy in love, how maybe she was, had some kind of mental illness, because she was, in fact, uh, a recluse uh, for the last 20 or so years of her life. She never left her house. Um, and during those years of never leaving her house, for some reason, she was always wearing white. I think there's like a white uh, dress hanging up somewhere in the house, if I'm not mistaken, that I think was actually a dress that she wore. And Susan Howe uh, allows that maybe she had a case of agoraphobia and she couldn't uh, go out. But, but Susan Howe does not at all see her as a tragic figure, far from it. She was a poet above all else a real original, and, and I think she had a lot of pride, and, and she took power in, I think she knew, you know, what she knew, that she, what, what the worth of what she knew. And, and so I think her life at home was absolutely sufficient to her. She didn't need to go out. It was probably just a distraction. The various uh, accounts um, that you can read show her as um, funny, clever person, uh, you know, very personable, kind, gracious, courteous, not an eccentric, a very good sister, a good daughter. Um, she, I think, would have appeared uh, as an ordinary person, odd probably to the people around her because she didn't marry and because she kept her own counsel. And I don't think uh, she could or wanted to show her true self uh, anywhere else but in her poems, which she chose quite emphatically not to publish during her lifetime. Although it seems she may well have understood how great the poems were. Uh, perhaps in not publishing, she was intentional. And she has a few poems, uh, famous poems about 
publishing and not wanting to publish. Uh, maybe in not publishing, she was, she was uh, avoiding the uh, inevitable trouble and misunderstanding that would always come from public engagement. Or maybe her not publishing the poems was a kind of radical form of religious renunciation. She did, however, uh, send lots of her poems in small, hand-sewn, hand-written editions to her friends and relatives. Sometimes she would include a poem in a letter. And she did reach out to a few literary people, uh, notably Thomas Wentworth Higginson, for their opinions of her work. And, and Higginson, for one, uh, had a lot of respect for her, but uh, misunderstood, so she resisted their opinions. She was quite a strong person. Um, maybe I've said enough about her to make you interested to see the biopic. A pretty good one, actually. Maybe you already saw it in 2016, recently. Cynthia Nixon, who was one of the women in the Sex in the City show, you know, she plays Emily Dickinson. Uh, I forget that Terrence Davies, I think, directed it. It's a very, it's a very good movie, actually, as I recall. I, I saw it. So I want to say uh, a few things uh, about uh, the religious background that existed in Emily Dickinson's milieu, uh, and then and then I want to uh, speak about a couple of her poems, and then uh, hopefully there'll be time for us to sit in groups and talk about the poems together. So as I said, she was from Amherst, Massachusetts. Amherst, Massachusetts is about 75 miles from Concord, Massachusetts, which was where Emerson and Thoreau and that whole circle of great American transcendentalist thinkers, uh, that's where they were from. She was uh, contemporaries with them. She was born in 1830 and lived until 1886. Um, you know, we, we talk about all the technological changes going on now, but she had a big one. The railroads came in during her lifetime, and there were, you could take a train, you know, during her life. Before, when she was born, you couldn't, but by the time she was uh, mature, you could take a train to Boston, you could take a train to New York. People were traveling to Europe, people in her social circles were traveling. And uh, also, not incidentally, there was a thing going on there called the American Civil War, which was quite an event, I think, probably makes any other event, including all the world wars in America, look uh, tame by comparison, because it was happening here, you know, locally, nearby, and everybody was dying. There were a huge number of deaths. So there was a lot going on during her lifetime. And of course, she related to it all in her poems, but almost always indirectly completely indirectly. So I mentioned Concord and Amherst because there was a big cultural gap between Concord and Amherst. Concord, a place where, the, as I said, where the transcendentalists were, was relatively speaking pretty liberal and pretty free thinking. 
Emerson uh, was a Unitarian minister. Unitarian, not Trinitarian. So Trinitarian, you know, Father, Son, the Holy Ghost. Unitarian means that there's no mystery around Jesus as incarnated God. Jesus is a great spiritual teacher, according to the Unitarians, or at least the Unitarians of Emerson's stripe at that time. It's why, by the way, there's so many Unitarian Buddhists. Did you know that there's actually like a group of Unitarian Buddhists? They have a co convention every year. And I know at least two Zen priests who are Unitarian ministers because um, who doesn't believe that Jesus was um, a tremendous spiritual teacher? It's not a problem. When you get into the doctrine of faith and the, and the divinity of Jesus, then uh, you have great disagreements and trouble. The Unitarians also believed then, and I think do now, one of the, one of the uh, tenets of their um, understanding is that everybody has a spark of the divine in them. It sounds a little bit like Buddha nature, doesn't it? In fact, it is pretty much the same idea as Buddha nature, which is why I think uh, uh, Mahayana Buddhism is so sensible to a lot of American people, because the idea of Buddha nature, I think, is sort of built into at least this strain of American thought. And, and if you ever read a history of American Buddhism, there's two or three different histories, you know, of American Buddhism. It always begins with Thoreau and Emerson and the Transcendentalists because they were quite aware of Buddhism and other forms of Eastern thought and it inspired them and influenced them, as it did uh, Walt Whitman, who was not from Concord but from New York. So that's Concord. Uh, Amherst was a very different story. Amherst was an evangelical town. It was a Puritan town and a Calvinist town. And it was the place where there were lots of religious revivals over a period of about 150 years, starting bef long before Emily Dickinson was born. Since it was uh, America and everybody was free to choose, you, know, you, could, you were often prov uh, you know, provided the choice. Are you ready to be saved? You don't have to be saved. But are you ready to be saved? You choose. Emily Dickinson attended Mount Holyoke Seminary for one year. And it was a girl's school in which there was, a, I don't know, a weekly meeting or something like that for all the girls who were saved. Only those who were saved could attend. And there was also another meeting for all the girls who were not yet saved but wished to be saved. They would attend that meeting. At home, uh, Emily's family members participated in all of this, were regular church attenders and had been saved. Emily, quietly but firmly, did not, was not desiring to be saved, which must have been uh, a little bit uncomfortable, I suppose, in that setting. 
As her poems show, she had an acute religious sensibility. But it was anything but dogmatic. It was the opposite of dogmatic. She had her own religious experiences, no doubt, and she trusted them. She didn't need uh, the uh, explanation of them that were given in the churches. Her religious sensibility, as you see from her poems, was extremely ambiguous, uh, multifaceted, you know, hard to pin down. And it had uh, quite a bit of irony to it, far more irony and ambiguity than her neighbors would have been able to tolerate or even comprehend. Uh, in that area, uh, near, next to Amherst, uh, was the town of Northampton, um, which was the place uh, where Jonathan Edwards preached. Jonathan Edwards was maybe the most famous of all Calvinist preachers, and his uh, sermons and his thought are, uh, again, if you read the history of American literature, you know, often, at least when I was a kid and they had textbooks, you know, it started with Jonathan Edwards and quoting Jonathan Edwards' sermons because he was considered to be one of the first truly American thinkers about religion and philosophy. He, he, he lived about a hundred years before Emily Dickinson, but his, his attitudes and his works were very well read and still important when she was around. Uh, my favorite title of um, one of his books, which I actually have, you can, you can uh, download this you know, on your device for free, is called uh, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, very famous book of his. And here's a uh, quotation just to give you an idea of uh, the incredible theology of Jonathan Edwards. I'm going to read you a passage that Susan Howe quotes from that book, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. The God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you, hates you, and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath toward you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. He is of purer eyes than to bear to have you in his sight. You are 10,000 times more abominable in his eyes than the most hateful venomous serpent is in ours. You have offended him infinitely more than ever a stubborn rebel did his prince. And yet, and yet, this is the thing, it is nothing but his hand that holds you from falling into the fire moment after moment. It is to be ascribed to nothing else that you did not go to hell last night, that you was suffered to awake again in this world after you close your eyes to sleep. Well, that will do wonders for a person, right, to hear stuff like that all the time. Can you imagine? In, in fact, uh, so far have we, so far have we come uh, in our attitudes since then that Jonathan Edwards would no doubt be barred from Twitter now if he 
If he, uh, that would be called, definitely be hate speech of some sort, you know. Anyway, uh, it's not hard to understand why M Emily Dickinson was not interested in the religion that she found all around her. And while some uh, women in, in the more sophisticated Europe of that same time, women like Mary Ann Evans, uh, also known as George Eliot, were uh, willing to uh, defy convention openly and vocally, in Amherst, uh, that seems a lot less, seemed a lot less uh, possible, and Emily Dickinson, either because of temperament or the circumstances, uh, chose a quiet and deeply inward form of out-and-out out rebellion. I, I don't know, uh, but I, I have a feeling that she viewed the people around her, men and women alike, uh, with a degree of amusement because you cannot find anywhere in her poems, despite all of this that I've said, a drop anywhere of bitterness. Lots of irony and humor, but no bitterness, no sarcasm at all. And also, and this is what is of interest to me in particular, and this is why I love Emily Dickinson so much, and I said this before, her religious sense was completely attuned to her poetry. There was no difference, you know, between poetry and the religious sensibility. She seems, it, it seems to me anyway, that, that she's not writing pre-digested thought, you know, as a religious poet would have the doctrines and the ideas and then would write something pleasing uh, to illustrate those doctrines and ideas. I don't think Emily Dickinson did anything like that. The writing for her was the thinking. The writing was the thought. And sometimes the writing was so often in advance, so far, often the writing was so far in advance of the thought that you couldn't tell. And I think possibly she herself couldn't tell exactly what she was saying, as we will see in a moment. Because the words were in charge. The words drew her. She didn't use them to express herself. Her poems, as I say, are often quite funny in an understated and sly way even when she's writing about death and despair and other drastic things. There's always a hint of humor, and we'll see that too in a minute. As I said a minute ago uh, in relation to Thomas Wentworth Higginson, who also was a Unitarian minister and a literary person, and also he was a soldier he was the head of an all-black, he was a white guy, but he was the head of an all-black regiment from South Carolina in the Civil War. He also was a rabid abolitionist and uh, openly defended the rebellion of, um, you know who I mean, John Brown, John Brown's rebellion, which was you know, pretty scandalous, and he was, John Brown was hanged. But Higginson uh, 
defended that and said somewhere that he regretted that he did not he was not able to participate in it. So he was quite something, but when it came to uh, literary material, he was a little clueless because he really didn't. I mean, he knew enough to respect Emily Dickinson, but he didn't really understand her poems. He kept trying to fix them and correct them, which he did do, uh, because it was Hig thanks to Higginson that she, after her death, her poems were published and were, became known, but Higginson fixed them up, corrected them, straightened them out. And for a long time, this was the Emily Dickinson that was known as a poet. It was the Higginson's version of Emily Dickinson, a nice, polite lady poet from Amherst. Maybe that's the Emily Dickinson that you read in school. It was the one that I read at school. Uh, the first editions of her work began to appear in the 1890s, but Believe it or not, it wasn't until 1955, right, 1955, that the famous Thomas Johnson edition of all of the 1775 poems were finally published. They were numbered because she didn't title her poems, although when you read them in school they had titles because Higginson or somebody else gave them titles. But in 1955, finally her poems, as she wrote them, were published. And that's when people began to realize, oh wait, this is, this is not who we thought she was. She was not uh, a, a naive person. I mean, she was very, very well educated. Uh, her family was, uh, you know, prominent and, and uh, big library. She was uh, knew the Bible backwards and forwards, knew Shakespeare backwards and forwards, read the Romantic poets, read all of English and American literature, including Emerson and Thoreau. She was a big fan of Charles Dickinson and George Eliot and Elizabeth Barrett Browning and especially the Bronte sisters. In her book, Susan Howe devotes a page to the relationship of Emily Dickinson to Emily Bronte. They never met, of course, but um, Emily Dickinson was deeply influenced by Emily Bronte's life and works. So I'm going to read you uh, this because it's so brilliant. Um, so, um, she quotes a poem of Emily Dickinson's which was written in 1862 and Emily Bronte died at the age of 30 in 1848, so the poem was written significantly after Emily Bronte's death, but Susan Howe quotes it as if it's, it may be about Emily Bronte, maybe it's about somebody else, but it's about uh, being bereaved over the death of someone you don't know, who matters to you, like, like say a famous author, right, who sometimes I notice that like at Zen Center or here we will put on the altar, we chant for someone who nobody knew personally, but was an important cultural figure, and you really, sometimes you really do grieve over such a figure. And this is an Emily Dickinson poem that Susan Howe quotes in this context. Bereavement in their death to feel whom we have never seen, a vital kinsmanship import our soul and theirs between. For stranger, strangers do not mourn, 
there be immortal friends whom death see first, tis news of this that paralyze ourself, who, vital only to our thought, such presence bear away in dying. Tis as if our souls absconded suddenly. So uh, I'm not going to go into details about that poem, but I think you get the gist of it, that, that um, it's a funny, she's saying, you know, what, what an amazingly powerful thing it is that we mourn in a very special way for someone who meant so much to us, as if our souls suddenly left us when that person dies, even though we didn't know them. Then this is uh, now Susan Howe. In the separate souls of these two women, once again, the inhuman legalism of Calvin warred with the intellectual beauty of Neoplatonism, violence of the occult in Puritan thought, twofold wisdom, rational and supernatural, ceaseless mythic advance of poetic composition, I call Wuthering Heights a poem. So there's a lot she's saying there that's really quite, you know, Susan Howe is like an erudite person. She's awesome. I think she spent half her life in the library, literally, you know, because she knows everything. But uh, she's talking about um, rational and supernatural wisdom, the ceaseless mythic advance of poetic composition. I think she's describing uh, Emily Bronte and Emily Dickinson. She goes on, if God created man and woman to damn them, which is sort of, sounds like Calvinism, Emily Bronte sided with the sinners and was recalcitrant. In the fictional real world of Gondal, in the doomed defiant oneness of Heathcliff and Catherine, she dismembered the surface cohesion of minds, M-I-N-D, minds, civilization. Society, a hostile territory, would always force passion that was infinite to conform to finite necessity. Passion that was infinite to conform to finite necessity. And now she quotes um, from an essay by Emily Bronte, which is, this is quite striking, I think. And, and you can imagine this being something that would have shaped Emily Dickinson's thought. Nature is an inexplicable puzzle. Life exists on a principle of destruction. Every creature must be the relentless instrument of death to the others, or himself cease to live. Nevertheless, we celebrate the day of our birth, and we praise God that we entered such a world. In the course of my soliloquy, I picked a flower at my side. It was pretty and newly opened. But an ugly caterpillar had hidden himself among the petals and already they were drawing up and withering. Sad image of the earth and its inhabitants, I exclaimed. This worm lives only by destroying the plant which protects him. Why was he created and why was man created? He torments, he kills, he devours, he suffers, dies, is devoured. That's his whole story. It is true that there is a heaven for the saint, 
But the saint leaves enough misery here below to sadden him even before the throne of God. I threw the flower to the ground. At that moment, the universe appeared to me a vast machine constructed only to bring forth evil. So that's a pretty bracing worldview. It's, it's sort of not, it's very like Jonathan Edwards, right? It's not, only it's not pointing the finger at you, blaming it all on you, like Jonathan Edwards says God does to us. But uh, it, it, I mean, there's nothing she says here that isn't completely true, of course. But uh, wow. And then now, back to Susan Howe. At times, the entire universe was hostile. And love, a force in nature exactly equivalent to hate. Away from her home in Yorkshire, prevented, this is uh, Emily Bronte, away from her home in Yorkshire, prevented by poverty from turning with pleasure into the liberty of solitude offered, Emily Bronte found it hard to believe in a God of justice and mercy. And she points out that unlike Emily Bronte, who I guess was you know, poverty-stricken, um, Emily Dickinson was comfortable and well-off, and so wouldn't have necessarily had that sort of anguished view, but would have understood it, I think. So uh, there is definitely a darkness at the heart of Emily Dickinson's poem, a poems, a darkness that Wentworth Higginson wouldn't have even noticed or uh, appreciated at all. And, and a darkness that was probably the force she needed to fuel her rebellion, uh, both as a woman and as an independent thinker in that place and time. One time, Emerson, you know, was on the circuit, just like now, you know, what do you think, what do they call them? Arts and, arts and uh, letters, lectures in, the, in downtown, in the city, they had that then the Chautauqua circuit, and so Emerson would go traveling around giving lectures. And once he came to Amherst, probably more than once, and, but there was a particular time when he came and gave a lecture and then went, went over to tea at Austin uh, Dickinson's house, which was next door to Emily Dickinson's house, just across the yard. Uh, it would seem that Emily did not bother to attend either the lecture or the tea, and I can see why. Uh, Emerson was a public person, a person whose job it was to pontificate to the educated classes, and probably Emily Dickinson had no interest whatsoever in a famous man's great exposition of the truth, the truth she was discovering in her poems every day was more slanted, more circuitous, and much fuller. Uh, than his, although Emerson is very great. I love to read Emerson, too. So I have some poems I'd like to share with you and talk about a little bit. And uh, now, uh, we'd asked everybody who's here in the room to print these poems out or have them. So hopefully you do. If you don't, maybe you can look on with somebody else. Uh, for people uh, on the computer, maybe there can be screen share. Uh, I don't know, but you would have the PDF. And if you don't have a printed copy, it's not a big deal, really. I'm going to read them several times, so 
you might even prefer not to look at the printed copy. So the poems I'm going to, the, the two main poems I want to talk a little bit about are uh, number 754 and number 745. It's a little confusing because uh, after the, there's a new kind of, um, what's the word I want, uh, official um, version of Emily Dickinson's poems that has supplanted the Johnson one, and it numbers the poems differently. So here in this handout, you see there's two numbers, one number and then a second number in parenthesis, right? And so the poem I want to read is number 764 or in parenthesis 754. 754 is the Johnson, 764 is the Franklin, which is the new one. Uh, and I, I'm not sure, I haven't looked it up, but I think the Franklin one might be super expensive, maybe only for professionals or something. The Johnson one is really available in paperback, it's easy to get. Anyway, it's number 754 in the Johnson edition. It, it, the um, entire, uh, my Emily Dickinson, the entire book by Susan Howe is set up as a commentary to this one poem that I'm going to read now. My life had stood a loaded gun in corners till the day the owner passed, identified, and carried me away. And now we roam in sovereign woods, and now we hunt the doe, and every time I speak for him, the mountains straight reply. And do I smile such cordial light upon the valley glow? It is as a Vesuvian face had let its pleasure through. And when at night, our good day done, I guard my master's head, tis better than the eider duck's deep pillow to have shared. To foe of his, I'm deadly foe. None stir the second time on whom I lay a yellow eye or an emphatic thumb. Though I then he may longer live, he longer must than I. For I have but the power to kill without the power to die. My life had stood a loaded gun in corners till a day the owner passed identified and carried me away. And now we roam in silent woods and now we hunt the doe and every time I speak for him the mountains straight reply. And do I smile such cordial light upon the valley glow? It is as a Vesuvian face had let its pleasure through. And when at night our good day done, I guard my master's head. Tis better than the eider duck's deep pillow to have shared.
To foe of his, I'm deadly foe, none stir the second time on whom I lay a yellow eye or an emphatic thumb. Though I than he may longer live, he longer must than I, for I have but the power to kill without the power to die. So what in the world, right? You don't really know what that is telling you. I don't. I can't, I can't really and truly. There's so many things about this that are so odd and so intriguing, right? I mean, just the first line alone can get, get, keep you going for, for weeks, right? Your life as a loaded gun. What about that, right? What a metaphor for one's life, a loaded gun. Because she's writing this during the Civil War. Guns are real, she knows. I mean, there's hunting and fishing around there. So they have guns. Nowadays, we have guns, 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 nothing but guns. We, have, we need to have like repeating, what do you call them, guns with the big magazines to shoot a bunch of bullets at people. You need those. Everybody needs them. They advertise them. They, they uh, you know, people like us, we may be unaware of this, but huge advertising campaigns. That now you cannot ban assault weapons. You could in the 90s because not people didn't need assault weapons. Nobody had assault weapons except for a few people. Maybe the militias had them. Now everybody has them because there's been an ad campaign to show that it's, it's a kind of a certain kind of American identity to own an AK-15. So this is a loaded gun. She knows what she's talking about. My life is a loaded gun. It's an unfired weapon. My life is, well, when does the gun go off in our life? Does it go off when we yell at somebody? Does it go off when we die? Does it go off when we realize who we really are and start articulating our life? What is it, what is it, all, what does it mean? My life is an, a load, an un, my life is a loaded gun in, not in a corner. I mean, a gun would be in a corner. It's a loaded gun in corners, right? That's odd. I think maybe because uh, my life had stood a loaded gun in a corner isn't, doesn't sound right. My life had stood a loaded gun in corners sounds right. So the words told her that she has to say in corners, but of course she knew what that meant and it was odd, right? My life had stood a loaded gun in corners, in every corner, everywhere. I don't know. Till a day the owner passed. Who is the owner? Now, in the 19th century, you capitalized, uh, I think, a little bit informally. You decided what words you wanted to capitalize. So she capitalizes loaded, life, gun, corners, and owner. But you get the feeling that the owner, is it the owner of the gun? Is it the owner of her life? If her life is a loaded gun, then the owner is the owner of both the gun and her life, or her life which is a gun. 
Who's the owner of your life, of our lives? I think she means that in a kind of metaphysical sense, right? Religious sense, the owner. And what a funny way to refer, if she's, if she's referring to God, what a bizarre way of doing so. God is the owner of the gun that is my life. It's very strange, very twisted. And then it says, the owner passed identified and carried me away. Identified. The owner identified her. The owner, what, so now we have the idea of identity, politics, right? And everybody, so many people now are concerned about the question of identity. What is my identity, right? Gender identity, all kinds of identity, racial identity, all kinds of identities, multiple identities, intersectionality of identities, and so on and so on and so on. But here, this is some sort of ultimate sense of identity. The owner identifies this life, which is a loaded gun, and carries it, her, away, me, she says, me, away. Does the me, that Emily Dickinson, maybe. So there's a lot in, in that first. Also, it's very famous thing that these dashes, you notice the dashes in those lines? Uh, this is one of my obsessions. You know, I, I have used the Emily Dickinson dash in my poetry for many years in different ways. That's one of the things they cleaned up. They said, this is, there's no dash. You know, there's like commas, there's periods, but who has dashes? Why did she have dashes? Never mind the dashes. So they eliminated the dashes. When you read Emily Dickinson's poems in school, they didn't have dashes in them. But her poems all have these oddball dashes in them, which are unique forms of pause you know, for her, poetic pause. Sometimes making the poem and the sound of the poem awkward on purpose. She was very weird, Emily Dickinson, and she knew exactly what she was doing. My life had stood, a loaded gun in corners, till the day the owner passed, identified, and carried me away. Those dashes are to be heard. Anyway, it's very mysterious what the owner is what it, what it means that the owner has identified. So, so the life was inoperable. It was standing in corners, loaded, until the owner identified it. The owner somehow authenticated it and then carried this life away. So she, who knows? She can be referring to some kind of religious revival that happened within her, religious awakening that happened within her, that suddenly her life began, she felt. And in a way, it had not begun before. So now she's roaming around with the owner in the sovereign woods, which is a funny concept right there, the sovereign woods, this, the sovereign, the government is sovereign, the king is sovereign, but the woods? Why are the woods sovereign? Maybe because for Emily Dickinson, maybe 
nature is the ultimate sovereign? I don't know. And now we hunt the doe, not the deer, but the doe. And every time I speak for him, what? Speak for, not to him or with him, I speak for him. And the mountains straight reply. Uh, the expectation in these lines is that they rhyme. So when they, when they rhyme funny, it really is striking. So you want the word at the end of the fourth line here to rhyme with doe. And now we roam in sovereign woods, and now we hunt the doe. And every time I speak for him, the mountains straight reply. What? <laughs> you know, it's, it's very much a violation of expectations in the sound of the language, because that's supposed to rhyme with doe. So the mountains straight reply, she is speaking for him. It's a he with a capital H. She's speaking for him, and yet they're companions. We roam, we hunt the doe, and like I say, it's, it's a doe, and every time I speak for him, maybe she speaks for him in, in this poem, or in her poems, maybe that's what her poems are doing, speaking for the owner, because the owner doesn't have any words, so the owner depends on her. Every time I speak for him, the mountains straight reply, meaning the mountains as mountains are speaking. It's a little bit reminds me of Dogen's Mountains and River Sutras, right? Or the mountains walking in Dogen. Here the mountains are speaking. I think nature, and, and you know, it's maybe a false uh, uh, notion, nature. Maybe it's not nature per se, but the physical world we live in, which is maybe pure, most purely expressed in nature, but it's everywhere. So next, and, and do I smile? And if I should smile, such cordial light ope upon, and, and this is um, one thing about the Franklin um, edition, and this is taken from the Franklin edition. Oh, I should say, uh, I forgot to say in the beginning, this little packet of Emily Dickinson's poems is from Bob Perlman. Bob Perlman uh, retired recently as a professor of English literature in the um, University of Pennsylvania, and Bob is a poet, a great poet, and a very close an old friend of mine, and Sue Moon's brother-in-law and housemate. So uh, I knew that Bob would have a sheaf. I, I, you know me, I'm, anytime I can get out of work, I'm there, you know. So I thought, oh man, it's going to take me a long time to choose a bunch of Emily Dickinson poems, even though I probably, now that I think about it, I have a folder probably in my files, which I never ever open, right? 
of Emily Dickinson poems. But anyway, I just thought, I'll email Bob and Bob will have a sheaf of Emily Dickinson poems. And sure enough, he did. And these are from the Franklin edition, which preserves all of Emily Dickinson's mistakes. Because, uh, you know, it's like a reaction, right, to people cleaning up Emily Dickinson. So uh, Franklin decided there would be no cleaning up whatsoever. All of her mistakes should be preserved. So she always spelled the word upon, O-P-O-N, as in this next line. And so if you read it in the, in the Johnson edition, it says U-P-O-N. Uh, here, it's, she, he uses her spelling. Also, in, um, in, in the last stanza, the first line of the last stanza, he, it looks like he preserves what I'm sure is a mistake. Thought I then he should surely be though I then he, right? And she must have, because you know, she didn't have a typewriter, right? So all these poems are taken from her handwriting. So if you want to find out what she said, you've got to go back to the facsimile, which Franklin does. And she probably had a T, but you know, you've written things, right? And misspelled and so on. So I'm pretty sure that that's though, and that's how I read it, though I then he may longer live. Anyway, upon is a mistake. Also, in the next, to the next line down, two lines down from there, had let its pleasure through. This is apparently a mistake that Emily Dickinson always made. Uh, whether or not uh, it was a quirk or somehow she had a meaning to it, I don't know. But here, it's, and maybe, maybe the usage was different in those days, I don't know. But here, by, the way we would write this is I-T-S with no apostrophe. I-T apostrophe S means it is. So all these mistakes are uh, throughout the Franklin edition preserved. And do I smile such cordial light upon the valley glow? So it appears that Emily Dickinson, or whoever the, the person whose life is the loaded gun here, this person has so merged with the owner that she is like, she appears and the whole world lights up. The whole valley glows when she appears. And then it's a Vesuvian face, though. Vesuvian, you know, is violence, right? It's like a volcano. Isn't it Mount Vesuvius that, like, destroyed Pompeii, right? So this is not a friendly thing. A Vesuvian face had let its pleasure through. Its pleasure is to destroy, right? That's what Vesuvius erupts. So this is, and that goes along with the idea of the gun, right? The gun, the gun is a wonderful, uh, as gun lovers will say, you know, the gun is a wonderful thing, and all it wants to do is shoot stuff, and it has so much fun when it's shooting stuff. It's what a wonderful thing, you know. There goes uh, a bird is flying, a pheasant over the cornfields, kaboom! What a wonderful thing, and what a dinner we're going to have, you know. This is all very positive and very wonderful. I wonder if that's how Emily Dickinson looked at it. I very much doubt it. And yet, uh, she's writing about this violence in a very lighthearted 
but at the same time, serious way. It's a little disturbing to me, anyway. Do you, do you feel that the whole thing is a little bit disturbing? It's as a Vesuvian face had let its pleasure through. So when she, along with the owner, is shining on the world, it's there's a little violence in the background. And when at night our good day done. I guard my master's head. Now, what about that? Right? What, she beheads the master? Or she's laying down in bed with the master holding his head? But that doesn't really, there's no way in which that really kind of adds up for me anyway. Tis better than the eider duck's deep pillow to have shared. And then this to me is fabulous to rhyme shared and head. That's a rhyme, right? That's an Emily Dickinson rhyme. Because <laughs> it's got that, so that expectation, you know, and when at night our good day done, I guard my master's head. That's the, the regularity of the rhythm there is leading you to hear the rhyme even before it's there. Tis better than the eider duck's deep pillow. Whoops, she violates the rhythm there to have shared. I think that's kind of a masterful music in words. You know, uh, they don't do it here, but there are, I've seen, where, I don't know, where, must, maybe it's in the Franklin, I don't, I don't know where, where I've seen it. But there are, sometimes the, her poems will be uh, printed, you know, like this. And then on, on the bottom, there'll be uh, a set of variant words. In other words, she will say, uh, for the word uh, thumb, I might use this or that word. And there's like a, a, list, a short list of words and replacement words that she kept, which tells you that she was thinking over and over and over again about the diction of her words. And they're very careful with how she crafted these stanzas. And so I really I have a lot of admiration for that. I think it's amazing. And, and I say that that the meaning, that the, the, the craft of the verse drove the meaning rather than the other way around. She came to meaning through the craft. I know from my own experience that happens to me all the time. I don't know what the hell I'm saying, but then it comes out of the, out of the words. So um, I, I just think that's a brilliant uh, stanza to rhyme shared and head. And when, when at night our good day done, I guard my master's head, tis better than the eider duck's deep pillow to have shared. And, and really and truly, I, I, don't know that, I don't know that there is anything to be said about that. You could say a million things about that, but I don't think you've, you've deciphered that. I don't know what, what, I mean, it just complicates who this owner is, right? Who is this owner? And my master's head, right? What? And it's like a pillow. But yet she's sharing this with the master, it seems. Anyway, I, 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 it's hard to, hard to even, even make a guess. To be f to foe of his, I'm deadly foe. So and don't forget, she's a gun. So all of his enemies are my enemies. None stir the second time on whom I lay a yellow eye. I guess a yellow eye to me suggests like a tiger or a, 
an animal, uh, a cat of prey, maybe a house cat. Because the next line, to me, sounds like my thumb is on like a mosquito or some little bug, which then reduces this whole thing to a kind of near absurdity, right? This tremendous owner who might be God and the, whole, the mountains are answering and, and, and uh, the Vesuvian face is erupting and now we have this bizarre head and now I am foe to his foe and I, his foe is a mosquito. His foe is a gnat. I don't know. This last stanza, though, is absolutely mind-blowing. What in the world is being suggested here? Now, it comes from the deadly unloaded gun, I mean, lo the deadly loaded gun, and the violence lurking around the Vesuvian face. And maybe the master's head maybe has a slight hint of like John the Baptist's head, you know? A severed head, maybe? Maybe it's sort of suggested there. In other words, the violence in the poem is sort of lurking all the time. It's made absurd in the second to the last stanza, but it doesn't go away. And now in this last stanza, though I then he may longer live, he longer must than I. So this is the owner right, that we're referring to, the owner that is not clear exactly who or what it is. It seems to be some kind of metaphysical force like God or something. But though I may live longer than he, he must live longer than I. It's the difference between may and must. But how could I maybe live longer than him if he must live longer than me? That doesn't quite make sense, does it? Maybe I'll live longer than him, but wait, no, he must live longer than me. So how could I maybe live longer than him? It makes no sense. It can't be. But there must be uh, a tremendous puzzle about the difference between may and must. May is maybe could be contingency, like life, right? Which could be this or could be that. It could turn into death at any time or it could go on. But the owner is not like that. The owner is not living in contingency. The owner is living in must, absolute, ironclad, something. Is there anything that's absolute and ironclad in this life, in this world? No, except for the owner. Though I than he may longer live, he longer must than I. For I have but the power to kill, because I'm a loaded gun, without the power to die. What? She can't die. 
She doesn't have the power to die, but has the power to kill. I, I had a, a kind of a, to me, this had a suggestion of a suicidal idea. I'm sure that any intelligent person has to think sometimes, like, why would I live another day? What's the point? You only die anyway. So suicide, not in the sense of Emily Dickinson as being suicidal, but Emily Dickinson as entertaining the idea of not living. And feeling that she doesn't have the power not to live. In a way, you know, in a way, uh, when you think about it, you do, we all have the power to live, and living is killing, right? Anybody, when we study the precepts, and we study the precept, a disciple of Buddha does not kill, uh, in the course of thinking about that, we always say, to live is to kill. Because if you eat any food, you uh, kill, even if you're a vegan. And I always remember uh, uh, dear Jordan Thorne, who's passed away now, one time uh, when we were giving, we were giving people, different people were giving talks at Green Gulch about the precepts. And I think he was giving a talk about not to kill. And he was, at the time, working on the farm. And he said that uh, even if you eat only vegetables um, and you never eat a living thing, the vegetables don't come without killing. This morning, I drove the tractor, he said, down the row, and I ran over a mouse. And we trapped a gopher, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, and, uh, and we set out the... Um, ladybugs to eat the aphids, etc., etc. So even vegetables involve killing. So you can't live without killing. That's true. You, to be alive is to have the power to kill. So maybe in the end, that's what the loaded gun is. Maybe that's what the loaded gun is, that, that when we live, when we really live, we, we kill. And, but we don't have the power to die. We don't have the power to die. So people do kill themselves, you know, in different ways. Now that we have all the guns, you know, most of the guns' deaths are not mass shootings in Texas or Los Angeles or San Francisco. Most of the killings are people shooting themselves with their guns or their spouses or their relatives. That's by far most of the killings. But she seems to think that Human beings don't have the power to die. Maybe only the owner can take our life. We can never take our own life, even if we think we're taking our own life. Anyway, it's a very strange and profound thought that we have the power to kill without the power to die. I don't think we know exactly what she means by that. So. We said a lot about this poem, but I don't think we have come to the end of it, and I don't think that anything that I've said is necessarily true. Uh, I think there's a reading of this poem that it's about some guy who's in charge of her, and she's 
this is a poem of uh, rebellion against literally some, maybe her father or something like that, who was a very stern person. But I think there's, maybe, maybe it's true, maybe it, well, that's what prompted the poem, but to me it has much more dimension than some, some biographical thing. As a companion to that, um, briefly, I don't want to talk about this one, but just read it. Uh, number 479, parentheses 712. Um, it appears on page 1119 at the top there of, of your handout. And this is a pretty famous one. I'm sure you all know this one. And this one is, you know, th that one... Um, sort of, the one we just read, sort of worked on, on, on an extended metaphor of the loaded gun, but uh, it's sort of that metaphor is in the background of the whole poem. It's not necessarily in the foreground. Here, there's a metaphor that's in the foreground of the entire poem. It's like the metaphysical poets of a century or so earlier, John Donne and the others who did that, who used a, a metaphor that they almost to the point of ridiculousness, ran through throughout the whole poem. And it's almost com comic, you know, because you take it so far, you almost take it too far. And so this one is like that. Because I could not stop for death, he kindly stopped for me. Maybe the owner in the previous poem is, is death, could be. Because I could not stop for death, he kindly stopped for me. The carriage held but just ourselves, and immortality. <laughs> That's funny. Death is riding in a carriage. And uh, stop for her. Very nice. Thank you, Death. Stopping for me. And the only people in the carriage was uh, Death and, and her, or whoever, and immortality. We slowly drove. He knew no haste. And I had put away my labor and my leisure, too, for his civility. So civility and immortality here are rhyming, right? And it's so funny, you know. Death is immortal and civil. It's a funny idea, right? Death is very civil, I think, you know? But who would have thought so until you read it here? Reminds me of the William Carlos Williams saying, you know, uh, the way to get the news is not from the newspaper, it's from poems. And, and nobody reads poems, so people are dying for the lack of real news. <laughs> so we would have not have gotten this news if we hadn't read it here, that death is civil. It's a, ni it's a nice thing. So he was, death is not in a hurry. Sometimes you wish death would be in a hurry if you're in great pain. Sometimes at the end of life, there's a lot of pain and agony. Please, death, please. Now, now. No, sorry. You have to wait. Death is not in a hurry. We slowly drove. He knew no haste, and I had put away my labor and my leisure too, which you do when death is near, for his civility. We passed the school. So they're going along the country road there. They passed the school where children strove at recess in the ring. 
They must have had some sort of play ring or something. I'm, I'm making this up, but maybe in this 19th century schoolhouse there was like a ring where kids played, I don't know. At recess in the ring, we passed the fields of gazing grain. Isn't that wonderful? Gazing grain. They were like uh, we were weeding the other day, and our hillside is the grass is about that tall, you know. It's sort of it's a grain, a grass, right? And the, the idea that a field full of she would have seen cornfields and wheat fields or something like that, and gazing grain. We passed the fields of that, that's that's like. Uh, a genius thing right there, gazing grain. Who would have thought of that? I'm very envious. Ah, oh, Emily Dickinson is so good. It's a, just hopeless writing poems. Forget it. She's too good. We passed the setting sun. Or rather, he passed us. The setting sun passed us. The dews grew, drew quivering and chill. For only gossamer, my gown, my tippet, only tulle. Is that how you say that? Tulle? Tull? Anybody know? It's a fabric. Tull? Tool. Say tool. Yeah, so it rhymes with chill. Tool. Chill. Um, or rather, he passed us the dues. Yeah, how do you say it in French? That's a French word, probably, right? Tool? Tool. Or rather, he passed us, the dews drew quivering and chill for only gossamer, my gown, my tippet, only tool. We passed before a house that seemed a swelling of the ground. Well, we know what that house is. The roof was scarcely visible, the cornice in the ground. And that's sort of clumsy, the repetition of ground. It, it doesn't feel artful, but it feels like a clumsiness that she was happy to have. Because it is a clumsy thing, the grave, you know. Since then, tis centuries, and yet feels shorter than the day I first surmised the horses' heads were toward eternity. So it was a uh, little carriage ride toward eternity with uh, our speaker accompanied by death, which is civil, and immortality. But now the one that I, I, I'm more interested in right now of saying more about and I'll stop with this one, is Renunciation, which is number 745, in parenthesis, 782, in the Franklin edition. Renunciation. So what, what's interesting to me here is that um, renunciation is a huge part of our practice, I think. Um, and it was also a, part, a very huge part of Calvinist spirituality in a very different way. So obviously, she is writing about renunciation uh, from a Calvinist, from her Calvinist uh, milieu. Um, and I would imagine that she has some problems with it. Although it's hard to tell, you know, I find anyway, what she's saying exactly in this poem. So what's interesting is um, is um, whether she comes to a kind of renunciation that's closer to the one that we would understand from our practice. So, in a word, renunciation is you know this world is evil, human beings are evil. You must renounce the world, have faith in God, live the straight and narrow, and at the end 
God will not throw you into that fire of hell. God will, you will be one of the elect and you'll be saved. But this is a corrupt world. Everything should be done with trepidation. Do not engage this fallen world. Renounce it. Even though it was an absolute article of faith in Calvinism, do not leave the world and become a monastic. There are no monastics in Calvinism. That would be a sin. That would be because you have the job of living in this corrupt world with renunciation. That's your job. That's how you prove yourself to be worthy. So you cannot leave the world behind. In our tradition, as I, my understanding of it anyway in Buddha Dharma, is that we don't think that this is a corrupt world that is, uh, we, we see that it's a corrupt world, but we see also the other side of it. It's also a Buddha field, right? So sentient beings, as we can easily see but from reading the newspaper, are capable of some totally horrible things that they have been doing forever and ever, and we can't expect that they're going to stop too soon. And we see all those things in our own selves, so we're not that surprised when we see them also in others. But at the same time, Buddha nature, right? We know that our lives are worthwhile and that we are striving to be decent human beings, and so is everybody else. And so renunciation is not hatred for the world. It's letting go of afflictive emotion. It's letting go of attachment and confusion. So um, that's a very different, I think, sense of renunciation. So let's see what she says. Renunciation is a piercing virtue. Piercing. So letting go a presence. So that I find that really interesting and, and important, you know, religiously, don't you? That renunciation is piercing, it sort of pierces the veil of our attachment and our confusion. It is a letting go. We think of a letting go as a kind of deprivation, right? I'm letting go of something. Oh no, I, 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 I had it and now I have to let it go. The, the preacher told me I had to let this go or, uh, you know, uh, somehow or other, now, now that I'm a Zen priest, I can't indulge in this or that. Oh no, that's too bad for me. But no, it's not that. It's not a deprivation. It's a presence. Renunciation is a presence, a new presence she seems to be saying, a piercing virtue, that the letting go a presence. Or is she saying, letting go a presence, letting that go? She might be saying that, right? In fact, I think the line reads both ways at once. Because, of course, if renunciation is a presence and you don't let go of that presence, that presence is not there anymore, right? It's kind of paradoxical, right? So. Renunciation is a piercing virtue, the letting go a presence or the letting go a presence. It's different, right? The letting go a presence or the letting go a presence for an expectation, not now. Well, from a Calvinist point of view, you're letting go for heaven, not now. Now is completely not worthwhile. Everything now is about heaven, later. So I'm renouncing now for later. Not now. An expectation, not now. Of course, in our practice, 
expectation seems like foolishness, right? Expecting what, you know? Uh, and now seems like the only renunciation. So this is almost the opposite. A presence for an expectation, not now. So that's what renunciation is about. It's about renouncing now for the expectation of heaven, or some expectation, because we don't know that she <coughs> means that exactly. The putting out of eyes, after all of our Shurangama Sutra stuff about vision, right? Isn't it wonderful? The putting out of eyes, which is a little bit creepy, violent, horrifying, right? Putting out eyes, right? Yeah, Oedipus, right, right. For, for, because of his sin, right? The putting out of eyes, just sunrise. What about that? The putting out of eyes, then you can't see the sunrise. Just the sunrise without the eyes? Or maybe that's the only time you can see the sunrise without the eyes. Lest they. That's very enigmatic to me. The putting out of eyes, just sunrise, lest day. And lest day, to me, has in it a little sound, a little suggestion of last day also. She doesn't say that, but I think you hear that. Day's great progenitor outvi. What is that? You guess the great day's great progenitor is uh, like the owner. I think it's a, it's an interesting thing. I haven't I didn't look look into this, but it's possible that Emily Dickinson never uses the word God. That there's no God. God is too much of a button-down word. I, that's true. You know, I, I, people often. One of my jokes, you know, is that I know exactly what God is, and I know I do. And, and everybody's like amazed, how could he know what God is? Well, I do know what it is. God is a three-letter word in the English language. That is what God is. And it suggests all these things that are so problematic and so um, troublesome that uh, Emily Dickinson used everything else but that because I think she felt like the word God, I'm, I'm making this up, Maybe she felt like the word God did not signify. I don't think it signifies. I think it's just trouble. I don't think it tells you anything, the word God. It's just a three, troublesome three-letter word that we would be better off without. So she uses all kinds of ways of talking about what that word is supposed to refer to. And here her way of doing, saying it is, day's great progenitor, the creator of day, the progenitor of day. Out vi. Well, to vie with someone is to compete, right? So when you renounce, I think she's like poking fun a little bit maybe at our Calvinist neighbors who are trying to outdo God with their piety, right? Day's great progenitor out vi. Out God, God. God is, is, is even not as, not as pious as the good people of Amherst. She probably 
felt that way. God relaxes, fools around, you know, has a little bit of fun, does this, does that. Not my neighbors. No, no. Renunciation is the choosing against itself. The choosing against itself, itself to justify unto itself. Now, untangle that one. Right? Renunciation is the choosing against itself, itself to justify unto itself. Choosing against itself. Choosing against choosing. You could say that's a definition of renunciation. Renunciation is choosing not to choose what you would like, which is why you would choose it. Renunciation is the choosing not to choose to justify that very choosing. Twisted. I think it's, I think she's pointing at the sort of twisted nature of this whole game. When larger function make that appear, larger function make that appear smaller, although there's a dash there. So it's not appear smaller, it's make that appear smaller, that covered vision here. Feels to me like in these lines that I repeated several times about renunciation, she's showing the convoluted fallacy of that kind of renunciation. And in these last three lines, it sounds more like how we would understand renunciation. When larger function make that appear smaller, more intimate, more right here, that covered vision here. Here is the opposite of renunciation, because renunciation is not now not here, but this larger function is what appears. That covered vision here. I'm not sure how to take that covered vision. Anyway, there's lots in this poem as well as in the Loaded Gun poem that I don't really understand, and, and I assume that everything that I think about it is just me thinking about it and not necessarily reflecting what the poem says, but um, I think that a really great poem, you don't know what it says. It's like a Rorschach test, right? It says, and I think it's fair enough, actually, for the poem to, to say what you find in it. I think that makes sense, right? That, that the poem would bear many, many views, and it would evoke in different people different views that would be supported by the same poem. So that when we went to school and they told us, here's what the poem says, they were wrong, unless they were talking about a bad poem, in which case maybe they were right. But not Emily Dickinson's greatest poems. They, you can't say what it says, I think. 
So, um, oh, How did, it's seven o'clock. Is that when the seminar ends? Oh. I guess I really do like Emily Dickinson. <laughs> did I go on for an hour and a half, solid? Is that right? <laughs> That's funny. Okay, I don't have the... Uh, I didn't download the list of people to chant for, but I can do that now.